Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to see you. Let me add my welcome to those that you've received from other people today. It is good to have you here. It's good to see real people, live people. Glad that you're here. Are you glad to be here today? All right, we are glad to have you. Thank you so much for coming. For those of you who are watching online, welcome to you also. We're thrilled to have you where you are. Or maybe you're watching in person, but in another of our venues, a different campus. Glad that you are a part of this. Glad that we can be one church in multiple locations. Many, many, many different locations, even around the world these days, as people are tuning in from various places, and uh, we're excited about all of that. I'm also excited about continuing on today with our sermon series, Made for More. We've been in this series for a while now, a study through First Peter. We are almost to the end of it. In fact, we'll be ending it here in the next couple of weeks, and uh, it's, been a, it's been a great series. I've benefited from it greatly. I certainly hope that you have also, and we've got a very important topic that we're going to be looking at today as we come back to this series. Today I want to talk to you about trial by fire. Now, I know that you're familiar with that little phrase. It's something that just means a a trial that is especially intense, but you might not know the origin of that little phrase. It actually comes out of the Middle Ages when a judge might not have been completely sure about a verdict that he was rendering or maybe to confirm the verdict that he thought he was going to give. He put the person who was accused through a trial by ordeal, they called it. A trial by ordeal. And if the person fared well through that trial, they were considered to be innocent. But if they didn't fare so well, they were considered to be guilty. And there were a number of different trials by ordeal. One of them was trial by boiling water, where there was a big cauldron of water that was heated to a boil, and then there was a stone that was at the bottom of the cauldron. And if you were the accused, you had to reach in and get out and retrieve that stone. And if over the next couple of days you showed no evidence of any burns or any blisters or anything, you were considered to be innocent. If you had blisters or burns, you were considered to be guilty. Another one was trial by snake. It already sounds bad, doesn't it? Trial by snake was where a ring was placed on the bottom of a similar cauldron, and a cobra was put in on top of the ring. And your job as the accused was to reach in and retrieve the ring. And if you got bit while that was happening, you were guilty and dead. (laughs) Kind of of both. That's just the way it sort of worked out. And then there was trial by fire. Trial by fire was some sort of fiery ordeal that a person would have to go through. Sort of like, or one of them would have been walking across a long hot bed of coals. And if there was no evidence that you were burned at all, then you were considered to be innocent. You can kind of see the way that this works. Now, Thankfully, that was outlawed. The practice was outlawed in the 13th century because um, today I'm sure that there are all sorts of tortures that we could put people through. I mean, maybe today we'd have one that was having to sit and listen to to hours of campaign ads. (laughs) We've already got that one, right? And if the, the answer was whether you're guilty or not based on how much you love doing that, we'd all be guilty, I'm quite sure of it. But trial by fire was a real thing back in the 12th and 13th century. And it was also a real thing back in the 1st century. In fact, this is the exact sort of way that Peter describes what was going on for the people at that time. In writing to some folks who were going through 
intense difficulties, he said of them that they were going through a fiery ordeal or a fiery trial. We see him use that sort of language in our text for today, which is found in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, and you might very well want to turn to that so you can see these verses as, as they're laid out before us here today. 1 Peter 4, we just have 1 Peter 5 left after today. That'll take you a couple of weeks, and so this has been a, a good series. Glad that you are here. Welcome to all of you from wherever you have joined us today. So, this might be a passage that particularly resonates with you today because you might be one who's saying, this is great for me today because I'm going through such trials. I'm going through such challenges. And we're going to see exactly what Peter had in mind and what sort of challenges he's talking about here in this text. And if there's anybody who has the right to speak on this topic, it's Peter. Because Peter's a guy who had plenty of experience with trials. Trials based on the fact that he was following after Jesus Christ. Christ. So we're going to see what he has to say, and there's much that we can learn from him here today. And so as we begin to talk today about a trial by fire, the first thing that he says to us is to expect it. When talking about a trial by fire, he says, expect it. Here's the way he puts it in verse 1. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal or the fiery trial that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, there are certain things that can be expected, and that's true in all sorts of realms of life. If you're one who's given over to speeding all of the time, you can expect that you're going to get a ticket. If you're a team that plays the Pirates a lot this season, you can expect to have a lot of wins, <laughs> because they haven't been doing very well. Though this last weekend wasn't, wasn't too bad. If you're one who eats Orem's donuts every day, you can expect... To love it and probably put on some pounds. And Peter's saying, if you're a person who is a follower of Jesus Christ, then you can expect that there are going to be trials that are going to come your way as a result of your faith in Christ. He says, don't be surprised when that comes upon you. Now, we like to think that if we do the right thing, if we live a good Christian life, that everything's just going to be smooth sailing for us. There are going to be no problems. In fact, there's some pastors who teach that very thing. They say that's what it should be like. And if you're experiencing any difficulties, you must be doing something wrong. There must be some sin that you're hiding. There must be some, some way that you're deceiving yourself. Peter says, I've got a completely different perspective on that. He says that even the one who is faithful to Christ is going to experience challenges and trials. Now, thankfully, when we follow after Christ, when we live according to his word, most often things do go well with us. Things do go smoothly. And we have much that we can rejoice in. But Peter says it's not always going to be smooth sailing. And the reason for the suffering that Peter is telling his readers that they should expect is very simple. It's because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It's because they're choosing to live in such a way that upholds the values of Christ, the values that he had taught, the values that he had displayed in the way that he walked and lived and served and, and ministered in that culture at that time. And the thing was, the problem was for the Christians is that their lifestyle stood out 
in the context of a pagan culture that they were living in that was very much on displays in the city on display in the cities where they were living and people saw that they saw the behavior of the christians and it sort of sort of sh- showed a light on just how carnal they were living and they didn't like it at all and it's not just the common people who had a problem with christians the powerful did also. You can imagine that the emperor wouldn't have been very pleased at the fact that the Christians refused to bow down and worship him, but they would bow down and worship Christ. He thought he is the one who deserves everything. And where that wasn't happening, he would have the Christians arrested. For instance, Nero was one of those who was particularly vile and and evil and mean-spirited toward the Christians. And because they would not bow down and worship him, he, he would arrest them and he would have them drawn and quartered. If you are familiar with what that practice is, it's particularly gruesome. Not only that, he would also take tar and pitch and cover some Christians and he would use them as flaming torches, living torches for his dinner parties. This is the sort of context that we're talking about here. This is the sort of treatment when Rome burned and Nero famously fiddled while it burned, if that's historically accurate. He was emperor at that time. He blamed it on the Christians. And when there were riots and revolts that sprung up against him, he blamed it on Christians inciting those riots. And then you have this fiery demonstration of of Christians as human torches. Some people think, well, that's exactly what Peter is talking about. Because it's the right time frame that he's talking about Christians being treated in that fiery sort of way. And that's the fiery trial he's referring to. Now, maybe that or it just as likely, perhaps more likely, is just that he's referring to the fact that they're going through trials that are immensely difficult. And he's acknowledging that. And they're going through that because of their faith. And Peter's trying to get this message across to them. You shouldn't be surprised when that happens. Have you ever gone through a difficulty and you've wondered, what did I do wrong to bring that on myself? What did I do wrong? Why is God treating me the way that he's treating me? Well, it's not that God has forgotten you. It's not that God is necessarily angry with you. It's not that God has stopped loving you. It's none of those things. It's simply the outcome of living by a standard that is a minority opinion in the world today. It happened in the New Testament. It happens in our day as well. The scriptures tell us that would be the case. The apostle John writes this, says, do not be surprised my brothers and sisters if the world hates you. It's exactly what Peter is saying is the folks are going through that he's writing to. Jesus added this, if they persecuted me they will persecute you also because you're following after me. And Peter's readers were experiencing that sort of opposition and that sort of persecution in a major, major way. They'd been persecuted so badly, in fact, that they decided what we're going to have to do is actually leave our homes and our homeland and we're going to have to go somewhere else. Imagine that for a moment. Imagine that the way that you were being treated and oppressed and persecuted was so bad by your neighbors and by your co-workers and by the city officials and by the lawmakers that you felt the the, the best option for me here is to pack up the car with whatever I can fit in it and drive off to some other location, a location that is distant from me and unknown from me and is kind of weird to me, like Mexico or, or West Virginia or something. Imagine that you felt that the best thing you could do would be to leave. That's what's going on right here. Now, in the 21st century, 
we still have some of that same sort of treatment. If you look around the world, you can find Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. They're being arrested and they're being abused and they're being killed because they're following after Jesus Christ. In America, we've got it much, much better than that. We live in relative peace and ease. Now, yes, I understand that there are a number of people and movements that are trying to cast off Christian values and try to remove them from our society altogether. I know that that very much is happening in the world that is around us. And we're being labeled as bigots and, and haters and narrow-minded sort of people. And yes, you do have to wonder if Christian values are being cast off with such speed and regularity in these days that has probably been somewhat stunning to you. Will it be very long before Christians themselves are being pushed away, are being pushed out? It's a question that very naturally comes to us, and we need to ask ourselves, what is it going to be like? Well, one of the things that Peter says to us is, you should expect it. You should expect it when it comes. And it's good that he would tell us that because it can prepare us so that we're not caught off guard. And I think you see things transpiring in such a way in the world around us that you have to start to wonder exactly where is this going? And how do we respond when we see it? Well, he says, first of all, you should expect it when there are trials by fire. He goes on, he says something else, not just expect it. He says, you should also embrace it. Embrace it, he says. Now, so far you might be thinking, Pastor Jeff, you're building the worst case ever for becoming a Christian, right? Yeah, you can become one, but you might just expect that things are not going to go so well with you. It would be a lot like saying, yes, guess what? You got into the college of your choice. You get to go. Congratulations. There's only one downside. That is, there's only one roommate left, and he's a Patriots fan, and he's got a snoring disorder and COVID. Right? You're like, I'm not so sure I want to go. You might also be sort of saying, I'm not so sure I want to be a Christian after reading verse 12. If this is the way that it's going to be, that I need to expect that there's going to be some suffering, I need to embrace it when it comes. That's what he says. It sounds a little bit odd also. Look at the way he puts it. Verse 13. <clears throat> it says, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. It's interesting that Peter is telling them to rejoice and be overjoyed in the midst of the fiery trials they're going through. There's only one reality that could ever bring you to the place where you could actually do such a thing. And, if that's, and if that, that is if there is some sort of supernatural and spectacular thing that is transpiring because of it all and through it all. And indeed there is. Verse 14, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. When you experience trial from living out your faith in Christ, Peter says, you're one with God. You know this Jesus that you, that you hear about, the Jesus that you read about, the Jesus that people preach about? He's not some God that is distant and far off and way out there somewhere. Peter says he's a partner in your spirit and in your soul. You are one with 
him. He walks with you moment by moment, day by day, through his spirit indwelling you. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Earlier in this letter, Peter was making a similar point to some people who were suffering for the name of Jesus. And here's what he wrote then. It came back in chapter 2. It's these words. But you, who are experiencing fiery trials, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. He goes on, that's not all, as if that weren't enough. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Just think about what that's saying. Think about what that means of who you are. Peter says, I know it's difficult, and I know that there are trials that come along with declaring your faith in Jesus, but the trials, though significant, are minor in comparison with the glory that is to be revealed, with the partnership that you have in Christ, with the benefit and the blessing that He's provided for you in the moment and for all eternity. And if we can't bring ourselves to take on that sort of perspective, it's because we don't understand the glory of God. It's because we don't understand the true nature of our sin and all that was done to spare us, what was required to spare us, and all that we really have been spared from. Peter says it's phenomenal. He's made you a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, his special possession. That's who you are. We need to understand the significance of what that really means. The enormity of it all allows Peter, who walked with Jesus, who saw the miracles, who watched him die on the cross for sins, to say, embrace the trial. It is worth it. It is oh so worth it to be counted as one who belongs to Jesus Christ. Then he gives us a little caveat as he goes on here in verse 15. He writes, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. He's saying that suffering for those sorts of things is not the same thing as suffering for your faith. If you do those things that are bad and evil and wrong, you should expect that there are going to be evil and desperate consequences that you then have to face. I mean, that only makes sense, right? There's one guy who's experiencing that today as he's, he's been arrested and he's facing some serious jail time for robbing a store, grocery store. He actually carried off the robbery fine. He ran outside. The problem was that the getaway driver wasn't fast enough and they got caught. And who was the getaway driver? His mother. His mother. Don't you just love it when you hear a family's doing things together these days? Just sort of build your spirit. Or there's another guy. He was just trying to look out for his daughter because the daughter had taken up with a new boyfriend. He didn't like the new boyfriend. And so he put up posters around town offering $3,000 to anybody who would bring him the boyfriend dead or alive. I'm a father of daughters. I didn't even know you could do that. 
This guy knows now that you can't either because he's been charged with soliciting murder. Soliciting murder. If you do evil things, Peter's saying, you should expect evil things to come. He says, I'm not talking about that. However, verse 16, what he is talking about, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Peter knows that there will be a temptation to listen to the accusations of other people and start to shrink back in our faith. As people start to call you a hater, as they call you a bigot, as they call you narrow-minded, you're going to have this sort of internal desire to back away, to just kind of not let your faith be so evident or not let it be seen. And Peter says, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. He says, embrace it. Why? Why should I expect it? Why should I embrace it? Because it demonstrates that you're right at the center place that you should be and need to be with Jesus Christ. It talks about the benefit that is yours and that ultimately will be yours as you continue to faithfully live out what he's called you to do. Expect the trials. Embrace the trials. And he says there's one more thing when it comes to fiery trials. He says, lastly, overcome it. Overcome it. We pick up Peter's thoughts again in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Then he borrows a little bit from Proverbs 11, which is our verse 18. And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? At several points throughout Peter's letter, he's talked about judgment about judgment that is coming. And he says it's coming for both the believer and for the unbeliever. He says for the believer, when the judgment comes, it will be a judgment that declares you righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ applied to your life as you bowed your knee and gave your life over to Jesus Christ. For the unrighteous, he says, it will be a judgment where you are found guilty because you did not experience the blessing of life in Christ, of giving yourself over to Jesus. Peter's just reminding the believers that he's writing to that even if it seems unfair in the moment, or unfair at times in life, and it will, he says it will all be squared away. Justice will be accomplished. And it will be accomplished perfectly. And even though there are going to be moments when you're wondering, why can't the justice be something I see now and in the moment? Just hang on. Trust God. Trust His Word that He is going to fulfill what He has promised that He will he is looking out for your best interests and will see it through. Verse 19, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. It's interesting here that he refers to God as faithful creator. It almost seems a little bit out of left field. He could have referred to God as anything. Said, he could have said, commit yourself to God. 
Commit yourself to the Father. Commit yourself to Jesus. Commit yourself to the Spirit. Commit yourself to the Lord. Could have said anything. He chooses faithful creator. He does so for a reason. Because in saying so, he's trying to remind the believers that he is writing to that God is your faithful creator. He's the one who made you and fashioned you and formed you. He's the one who knows you inside and out. He is the one who endowed you with everything that you need to overcome the circumstances that you find yourself in. And by calling him the faithful creator, he's reminding the people, he's reminding us that we've been created and endowed with all that we need to face the circumstances, whatever they are, that would come our way. And he says, to all of you, continue to do good. That's how he wraps it up. Continue to do good, he says. Which is kind of ironic because if you continue to do good, what's going to happen? Trials are going to continue to come. He says, but don't be afraid of that. Don't shrink back at that thought. Understand that you are marching hand in hand, arm in arm with God himself who has made you and fashioned you and formed you with whom you have partnership and unity and oneness. He says that's everything. In this unique twist, the way to overcome trials isn't to be free from them but to walk through them hand in hand with Christ. It'll cause you to grow deeper in relationship with Him. You know how when you go through some sort of challenge or, or trial with some person, all of a sudden you feel an extra bond. Well, that's going to happen. On top of that, he says, trials develop in us perseverance, develops godliness, prepares us for other things that may very well come our way. He says, continue to do good. It does, however, make you wonder about the circumstances we're in and the trials that we face for the cause of Christ. Are these things that we see around us, that we go, are they just going to continue to get worse and worse and worse and worse? Which seems to be the trajectory that we're on and worse and worse until Jesus comes back. Is that the way that it's going to be? Or might we anticipate that things will get a little bit better. See, it's kind of a rather loaded question because we have to answer, well, what does better look like? Because we've already acknowledged that better is not just being free from any difficulty, any trial, because that would suggest that we're really not in the center place of walking together with Christ. If better means, however, that the general reception of the purposes of God and the people of God improves over what it's been, i got to tell you, I'm optimistic. I have hope for what the future can be in that regard. To believe otherwise is a bit of a defeatist attitude that would likely just have us hunkering down, hoping that Jesus gets back quickly. And that's what many people are doing. Last week we talked about, well, when is Jesus coming back? The believers that Peter's writing to thought it was going to happen in their lifetime. Obviously it didn't. It hasn't happened in the 2,000 years since. Is it going to happen in our lifetime? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. 
But either way, we need to press forward and live the life that we're being called to live. And I, for one, am not ready to throw in the towel and just sort of try to hunker down under the banner of woe is me. Because we've been given a call. And our call is to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It is to preach the gospel. And wherever that happens, people come into relationship with Christ. That's good stuff. And whether when we see individuals come into relationship with Christ, that's something that sparks some sort of wide-scale revival or not, I don't know what will happen. But I do know that even the revival in a single heart is worth everything. It demonstrates God at work. It demonstrates us fulfilling what God has given us to do. Likewise, we're called to care for the needy and the oppressed and the widows and the orphans and the disenfranchised. We're to fight for justice and reconciliation between people and groups and races and ethnicities. And I believe that there are days coming where we're going to see the brightness of the work of Jesus Christ in this regard. And we are going to work toward that end. And I believe that God is going to accomplish something that will cause us to say that whatever the difficulty that comes along with it, whatever the trial, whatever the challenge, God, I'm willing to take that. That's nothing in comparison to with what you're doing in my heart, in the hearts of people around me, in the work that you're doing in our nation and in our communities. So I'm not one who's about to throw in the towel on this. And as much as I have opportunity to lead pathway, we're not throwing in the towel on this. We're pressing forward. Because we're still here. And until we're gone, God has something for us to do in the here and now. And what is that? Peter tells us, continue to do good. Continue to do good. Is it going to be easy? No. Will there be trials by fire that arise as we do so? Yes. Will that cause us to shrink back? That's the big question. I don't know. Ask yourself, how has that happened for you to this point? What's the degree to which you're happy to share your faith with other people? People who are a bit antagonistic about what Christianity really is. That's answering the question of what we're going to do when the trial comes. Because we've already shown it. I pray that we'd be bold. I pray that we would honor Christ in the way we step forward in whatever one of these realms that happens to be in all of these realms as we have opportunity. I pray that we would be a people who take up the call, who expect the trial, who embrace it, and who overcome it. How do we overcome it? We do so as we continue to do good. And I pray that Pathway would lead the way. And Pathway is you. It's not just an entity. It's you. And it's as we individually take these steps that we're going to see God accomplish what only he can do and do it through us. You with me? I pray so. Heavenly Father, thank you for this very penetrating text. Thank you for Peter and all that he had suffered himself for the cause of Christ, which makes him a perfect voice of authority for all of us. 
And I pray that we would be bold enough and willing enough, understanding that it's not always going to be smooth sailing. Yes, we experience so much of that peace and prosperity in the world in which we live, in our daily lives. And we're thankful for that. But we recognize that if we're going to do the hard work, the challenging work that is at the center of your call, there are going to be challenges. And I pray that we would have the courage to see it through for the sake of accomplishing the purpose that you've given to us. To see people's lives transformed. To see groups that have been at odds with one another brought together. To see harmony and unity, even in the midst of strife. It can happen. It's happened before. Through the power of Jesus alive in us, it can, and I believe, will happen again. So Lord, use us. Give us courage. May we go from this place with a conviction in our heart to be those people, whatever the cost, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.